Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. China's star tech companies are under assault. They've been hammered with fines, bans, and threats. Plans to go public have been demolished, share prices squashed, and their profits flattened. As the smoke clears, the contours of the Communist Party's master plan for its technology industry are emerging. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Henry Trix. I write the Schumpeter Business column. And in today's episode, what sort of tech industry does China want? What they're doing is laying the foundation of the digital economy over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, and so, you know, they're breaking some eggs to, to make an omelette here. At least that's Beijing's view. I think this does bring about a great deal of uncertainty. However, this is nothing new. This kind of risk is embedded in the Chinese economy. But there's also these huge returns. The rise of China's $4 trillion tech sector has been one of the country's most dazzling achievements of the past two decades. 20 years ago, only 2% of people in China even had access to the internet. Its first digital pioneers were dismissed as Silicon Valley copycats. Yet today, Alibaba hosts twice as much e-commerce activity as Amazon. With 1.2 billion users, WeChat, which is run by Tencent, is the world's most popular super app. And across Europe and America, Generation Z is glued to ByteDance's TikTok. China's success in fields as diverse as digital healthcare, education technology and AI promised that rapid growth would continue and even perhaps challenge American supremacy. Which is why President Xi Jinping's ongoing assault on many of China's most glittering stars is so striking. The country's hottest tech groups have lost at least $1 trillion in combined market capitalization since February. So what does this all mean for the future of business in China and its economy? To help sift the madness from the method, I'm joined here from Hong Kong by our China business and finance correspondent, Don Wineland. Welcome, Don. How are you doing? Hi, uh, I'm doing great. We're getting some sunshine here in Hong Kong today after several days of rain. And also in Hong Kong and back by popular demand, our China economics editor, Simon Cox. 
Have you decided how to spend your strategic consumption vouchers yet? I'll spend them strategically, Henry, but um, I've just realised that I have them and, and Don sadly does not because he's a newcomer to Hong Kong, whereas I'm a permanent resident. So there, there's a split between the haves and the have-nots here on, on the podcast today. Sorry, Don. <laughs> Sorry, Don. Uh, well, let's get down to business. Anyway, Don, you've been following this story since the beginning. And you've written a fascinating analysis of it all this week. Is there a sense now that the tall poppies have been cut down? Where are the authorities' attentions focused at this point? It appears that they're focused on on everything across the board for Chinese tech companies. I mean, we've seen ride-hailing companies, education technology groups, video game companies all get hit relatively severely just within the past couple weeks. In April or March, we might have guessed that the worst was over for a company like like Tencent, which didn't seem to be kind of in the firing line like Alibaba was. But, you know, several months later, yet again, Tencent is, is getting hit in its gaming area. So state media has taken a a focus on the gaming industry. It's called it spiritual opium, which is a very historically loaded term. You know, this has been going on for about nine months now. It started off with the cancellation of the Ant Group IPO in early November. And it's basically continued on from there. These blows to the tech companies seem to continue one after another. Simon, do you want to chip in here? I mean, how much of a transformation do you reckon this is from what the situation was from Chinese tech just a year ago? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's been quite a transformation even more recently than that around sort of October time when uh, China was feeling quite pleased with itself for how well it had handled COVID. It singled out some of these same platform firms like Alibaba and, and praised them for their innovation and their ability to uh, adapt to pandemic conditions and to see China through those dark days. The straws were really in the wind, as, as Don mentioned, with the Ant IPO and then, uh, I guess, the Economic Work Conference in December, where they singled out platform economies and again, praised them, but also said we need to consider the pros and the cons. And there's been much talk about what's called the disorderly expansion of capital. And unpacking what that phrase means has been occupying lots of China commentators ever since. I mean, one thing that investors are talking about right now is is really pulling back from some of these companies that they've been investing in for years. So some of the big news over the past 24 hours has been that SoftBank is going to hold off on on investing in Chinese startups. And of course, Masayoshi Sun has been one of the, you know, one of the biggest investors in China tech over the years. It was an early investor in Alibaba. So I I think that, you know, that signal from SoftBank is quite significant. So Don, where do you think this is going? What's the longer term goal here? When people are are watching this play out, you know, it feels like chaos and destruction. But there are people that analyze what's going on and see, you know, at least some order. Kendra Schaefer, who is the head of tech at Trivium, a strategy consultancy in Beijing, has been following along with the data regulation very closely. She sees a bit more planning behind all of this chaos. It definitely does look like chaos from the outside. But from within China, there is at least some semblance of logic to what's going on here. 
China doesn't work in election cycles. They're not looking two years or three years or four years down the road. What they're doing is laying the foundation of the digital economy, right? Setting out the rules and regulations that are going to define how companies can trade in data and how tech platforms can operate over the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, and so, you know, they're breaking some eggs to, to make an omelet here. At least that's Beijing's view. You've noted that in policy papers, the government has referred to data as a factor of production. So they've added it to a number of other factors. To a lot of people, this sounds like economic jargon. What do you see taking shape? Yeah, uh, actually, I think it's pretty forward thinking. The traditional four factors of production in economics are land, labor, capital, and technology, right? So now in official Chinese economic circles, uh, there are five, land, labor, capital, technology, and data. And essentially what they're saying is data is the commodity of the future. And these other four markets, because we've been buying and selling and trading, you know, land and labor for a very long time, we already have rules and regulations around how those things can be traded. But when it comes to data, we've done very little of the legal groundwork. And essentially what they're saying is now is the time to do that, to create a data market. How do you think companies will be impacted by this uh, change in how data is treated? In the short term, this refactoring of the rules is causing a lot of confusion uh, for companies on the ground here. And part of the reason it's causing confusion is because regulators, while they have a long-term vision and a big-picture strategy, what they don't have is every single step along that path marked out. A famous saying is um, crossing the river by feeling the stones, right? Uh, what we do know is that uh, you know China is, is in the process of releasing some, some major, major laws that includes uh, the data security law, which was just recently passed, but doesn't come into effect for another month. Also, the personal information protection law, uh, which will govern how companies are allowed to use um, the personal data of citizens. And more clarity is coming as these laws kind of roll out. The hope is that once all these processes have been sorted, this all just becomes part of operating a, a tech company in China. You said that the regulators have a goal in mind. What do you think the end goal actually looks like? Well, we can see little little sketchy pieces of the edges of that goal right now. You know, the word data doesn't really mean very much. It, it kind of means everything these days. There are so many different types of data. They behave differently in the economy. They do different things for society, right? Some of them shouldn't be traded. Some of them should be traded. And so what China's really trying to do right now, or what they, they look into the future and see, is a world in which data is understood very well. Data resources, which are non-sensitive, can be freed up to support, you know, social initiatives or startups. You know, essentially a world in which non-sensitive data is used as seed capital for the digital economy. That's, that's the end goal. And where sensitive data, the converse side of that, is highly restricted and protected. You know, 300 years ago, the U.S. continent was broken into a few big pieces. This piece belonged to Spain and that piece belonged to Russia and that piece belonged to, you know. And when you look at a map of, you know, Omaha, Nebraska now, every single square inch 
of land has been bucketed by its allowed use case. You know, this is agricultural land, this is commercial land, this is residential land, and we know what you can do with each one of those pieces of land. You can build a building here, you can build a pipeline there, you can't do this with this and that and that. And so that's really kind of the end goal with data is to understand it and regulate it. So Kendra Schaefer sees it as confusion in the short term, with hopefully clarity coming soon. Don, what do you make of that vision she lays out of this kind of hyper-classified, hyper-regulated data market? Well, you know, the idea that a, a regulator or a country would would come in and try to bring some order to this market, I mean, in some ways, it's very welcome news. You know, whether or not... China is able to actually pull this off is, you know, is yet to be seen. And I, I personally think we're years off from this scenario where data has been classified in, in the way that that uh, China is talking about as so-called, you know, fifth factor of production. You know, none of that is really tested. I'd say it's pretty far off. So in that case, why is the government doing this? I mean, how much do its concerns mirror, in a sense, those that Western governments have about big tech? I mean, is this all about a power and regulatory overreach? So I think you can probably distinguish three competing explanations for what's going on, or perhaps I should say complementary explanations. So, so one is, is control. There are these um, big influential companies, some of them headed by charismatic figures with large uh, war chests of capital that they can deploy into a number of sectors. And this makes the Communist Party nervous. And so it's tried to take some of these entrepreneurs down a peg or two and it's tried to exert more control over their activities. Uh, A second is this sort of sense of disappointment with where soft tech or or consumer-facing tech is going and a wish to divert some of these resources into what's sometimes called deep tech or hard tech that might serve more sort of strategic national goals. Think of advanced manufacturing or electric vehicles um, or chips. So to put it very simply, you know, that the founder of PayPal in the West is busy reinventing electric vehicles and shooting off into space. Whereas Alibaba, the equivalent founders uh, in China, are busy trying to get into grocery shopping. You know. um, and then the third explanation is the stated one, which are that these industries, uh, including the platform economies, including the ed tech sector, generate certain kinds of social ills or or externalities, one of them being uh, monopoly power. Also, there's the concern in the education sector that parents are forced into this sort of educational arms race that's stressing them out and leading to lower fertility. And these are social ills that I think other countries also face. So three explanations, control, a shift from soft tech to hard tech, and uh, what you might call social externalities or social ills. And and not to keep you know our listeners in suspense, I think you know, there's an element of truth to all three, and we might begin to see which is more dominant as the months progress. Not to mention the spiritual opium. Don, wh- what do you make of that? Which of those motivations do you think is the strongest? When I see the crackdown on education technology, for example, or video games, it does make me think that there is a deeper pursuit of social order that that is taking place. Um, I don't think that the party is incredibly happy with the way that education technology companies have begun to supplement the public education sector 
I believe that a lot of this does have to do with imposing some sort of uh, stronger order over the way that Chinese society is shaping. And is there perhaps also an internal, almost bureaucratic dynamic that's taking place here in which the regulators themselves are competing with each other for more control over the industries that they they cover? Absolutely. So part of the problem with what's gone on over the past nine months is that there are orders that are being handed down from the top level of leadership. Um, You know, these people are not um, specialists in data processing. And, you know, the regulators are in some ways, they're inexperienced. They're under-resourced in terms of their their manpower to carry out a lot of these campaigns. Another problem is regulatory overlap. So regulators in China, you know, whether it's the banking regulator or the securities regulator, have often clashed and fought for portfolios across these areas. That That's happening now, too. So I don't think that that type of regulatory clash is helping it leads to a lot of confusion. So too much monopoly in tech and too much competition amongst regulators. (laughs) Yes, that's a good way of putting it. (laughs) Thank you, Don. Thank you, Simon, for the time being. We'll be back in just a moment to talk about the consequences of all this for China's longer term prospects. But first, if you're not yet a subscriber to The Economist, now's your chance. There's a special offer for listeners at economist.com forward slash podcast offer, as well as Don's fascinating analysis of Chinese tech. Subscribers can also read our thought experiment about what would happen if Bitcoin fell all the way to zero. You can find out how to solve the chip shortage and how new techniques could program people's immune systems against future pathogens. That's economist.com forward slash podcast offer. And the link is in the notes for this episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The reprogramming of China's tech industry has only just begun. That it is damaging certain companies in the short term is absolutely undeniable. But the Communist Party is sure it will ultimately be to the country's benefit. So the key question now is how much does hurting Chinese tech hurt China? Simon, as our China economics editor, how do you think about this question? Yeah, so obviously at the moment, uh, it's very much a business story. But uh, trust me, the, the economists are beginning to look at it uh, to examine its long-term implications uh, for things like productivity in an economy that's increasingly reliant on technology to further its advance. Uh, and one of the people I spoke to to dive into this more deeply is Ke Yu Jin, an associate professor at the London School of Economics, currently in Beijing. 
we are seeing what appears to be paradoxical actions taken by the Chinese government. On the one hand, it is drawing out a techno-nationalism unseen since the days of Chairman Mao. On the other hand, we are seeing actions that will reduce substantially certain technological sectors. You know, these companies have been very successful, have attracted very high market valuations, been good for investors up until recently. Do you think they've been overall good for the economy? Do you think they've helped China's growth? I think it's been critical for the last 10 years because China has shifted from an old model of development based on investment, exports, manufacturing and industries into one based on innovation and technology. And it's also the first time in history that a developing country, a, a country with only a quarter of living standards of an advanced economy, is already very successful at certain cutting-edge technology. And the Chinese government is keenly aware of it, which is why we believe here in China the the drive for technological advancement, the entrepreneurial encouragement, especially in deep tech and hard tech, will be a very important focal point of the Chinese government. And we should continue to see that being as a key contributor to economic growth. Now, whether intentionally or not, these regulatory moves have clearly caught foreign investors by surprise. How important is foreign capital to China? Foreign capital is important to China to the extent that it's not only just about money. It's about management expertise. It's about sharing technologies. It's about uh, collaborations. It's still about China's place in the world. And China still has a very open attitude towards globalization. I think this does bring about a great deal of uncertainty uh, as it changes the perception for foreign investors about investing in China and investing in Chinese technology, which was really up until now the hottest sector. However, this is nothing new. This kind of risk is embedded in the Chinese economy because policy uncertainty is one of the biggest sources of uncertainty in the Chinese economy less so monetary and fiscal shocks, these entrepreneurs see an environment which is still by and large encouraging. They see huge pools of capital. And entrepreneurs all have these jungle surviving abilities of being able to toe the line carefully about sniffing whether the policy direction is moving and nimbly and flexibly adjusting. That's been the case in the last 30 years since the rise of the private sector. Accepting all that, you know, clearly this regulatory crackdown is going to make life harder for these you know, previously glittering companies. How much damage do you think that might do to China's future growth rate? And, and does the government care or is it prizing other things like inequality, happiness, social peace above just a pure growth rate target? It's a lot harder to make money in China anywhere in the Chinese economy uh, going forward, uh, not just in tech, elsewhere in real estate, in manufacturing, in even in healthcare, etc. And the reason is that the Chinese growth came about uh, through a period of very loose regulations, even chaos, entrepreneurs who were brave and courageous and even reckless became very successful. Uh, that was the early model of Chinese development. Now, the granting of licenses, permits are much more difficult, much more regulated. Uh, local governments are much more careful, especially after the anti-corruption campaign. The shift in focus has been from GDP growth and investment to now high quality growth 
even if the growth rate is slower. And that is important because it means that there are a lot of things that entrepreneurs won't be able to. There are a lot of things that local governments won't be able to do if in return uh, there is more equity, uh, there's more rules and laws in place, respect for environmental standards, for consumer welfare. The shift in emphasis, uh, I think, is a welcome and consistent move with China's new objective. So Dr. Ke-Yu Jin is very confident about the resilience of China's entrepreneurs. But I wonder what impact this is all going to have on that kind of incredible effervescence that we've seen in Chinese consumer tech and in the consumer economy more broadly. Simon? Yeah, so we've been discussing the potential rationale for this. And uh, whilst there clearly is some sense in which they want to redirect investment, redirect money and resources towards other sectors. Uh, the danger is this kind of clampdown simply reduces the amount of money flowing into technology overall. I also think you know, there's a slight danger that China might want to run before it walks. Um, I mentioned earlier that there's disappointment that China's tech giants are doing mundane things like improving grocery shopping. But to some extent, you know, China still has a lot of scope for catching up in improvements in efficiency in quite mundane things. It doesn't actually have to be leading the race to colonize Mars, for example. So I, I think potentially this is damaging to its ambitions. Now, you know, an economist would say, look, there are inefficiencies in any kind of monopoly. And if you correct those inefficiencies, that's good. But some other economists will say, well, look, you need the, the lure of outsized profits. You need the lure of monopoly rents in order to inspire the kind of animal spirits to create these big prizes for entrepreneurs to try and capture by inventing new business models and uh, making these, these long-term gambles. Fascinating. Don, what do you think about the financial implications of this? What does this mean for capital raising, for example? Well, if we're talking about Chinese IPOs in New York, I mean, I, I think that this is having a huge impact. It's not just what's going on on the Chinese side. It's also on the American side as well. So if we look at the DD IPO that took place right at the end of June, that was a $4.4 billion IPO in New York. Just a couple days later, the Chinese regulators, they launched an investigation into DD. Last time I checked, the share price had, you know, had fallen by more than 50%. Investors in America certainly don't want to be investing in companies that are going to get hit by a, a regulatory probe um, a couple days after they list. Um, and of course, the, the American government has put in new restrictions on on Chinese IPOs. Um, you know, within three years, we could see all of Chinese companies delisted from American stock exchanges if, if Chinese companies aren't willing to hand over certain auditing documents. So if we're thinking about what's going on in America, certainly this is having a huge impact. Now, the willingness for companies to invest in China, I think in the short term, this is going to have a big impact. But, you know, in the long term, these investors have had lots of setbacks over the years. You know, if there's kind of a redirection to new industries, global investors will follow along with that and, you know, go where the fast growth is. I mean, Simon, there is a sense, I suppose, that China thinks that its capital markets are now deep enough that it can be a little bit less in need of foreign capital. Is that the case? OK, so I think you know, one of the notable lessons from this past you know, eight months or so is that clearly China doesn't fear 
the um, negative side effects of tougher regulation. I think there, there was a time when it would have been much more solicitous of foreign capital, much more worried about bad investor reaction, much keener, uh, frankly, to promote growth and employment, even if there were some of these social externalities. But, you know, having a deep domestic capital market and the option of bringing in smart money from abroad is obviously better than having only one of those two things. And it seems to me it would have been perfectly feasible for China to nurture the current soft tech, consumer-facing technology companies, and then say to the world and to its own investors, look, you know, having pulled off this trick of inventing these wonderful e-commerce companies, we're now going to do the same thing in hard tech, in uh, new chips, electric vehicles, cloud computing, and so on. It seems to me the two technologies could have been entirely complementary. There's no need to punish one in order to promote the other. So when do you think we'll know how much this crackdown has impacted investor sentiment in in Chinese tech stocks. So there has been news over the past couple of days that ByteDance, um, the company that owns TikTok, could pursue an IPO in Hong Kong. It'd be really interesting to see something like that happen at this time because if there was still strong appetite for a company like that in an IPO, that would indicate that you know investors still have a lot of belief that these companies have have futures. Can we come back to the fact that many of the concerns that we're discussing here that are motivating the Communist Party's actions are to a certain extent the same as those in liberal governments in the West who also worry about questions of competition and data, etc. So how should liberal democracies respond to what's happening in China? It's quite interesting. It wasn't that long ago that Western democracies worried that uh, China, by placing zero weight on data privacy, would steal a march in the race to develop AI and big data solutions. Now it seems that actually they could learn a few things from how this all plays out in China. We've already seen some Western commentators um, comparing uh, China's muscular approach to big tech favorably uh, with the more timid approach that uh, regulators in the West sometimes take against these very powerful companies. So uh, for me, uh, I think, you know, it it probably in in some ways is reassuring for liberal democracies that they're not at some unique disadvantage in the data economy. And also it's a potential learning uh, experience for them, uh, something to watch and compare. I think they could set quite a good example of breaking the monopoly status of of some of these big tech companies. We already see lots of uh, examples coming into place. The, the funny thing is, is that a lot of these companies in China are actually far more advanced. The tech is already beyond what we have in, in Western markets. And the regulation is also kind of moving in that direction as well. So I think we might get a taste of of how a large platform like, say, Tencent needs to be treated when it has the type of market power that it does. In a sense, it's a fascinating laboratory experiment that the world can watch and and learn from. So Don Wineland, Simon Cox, thank you both very much indeed. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Henry. Thanks, Henry. And thank you for listening. For an extra helping of Money Talks, you can also sign up to our new free newsletter. It's got the best of our analysis of the latest in economics, business and the markets all gathered together in one place, along with personal insights direct from our correspondents. You can sign up 
at economist.com forward slash money talks. The producer was Amika Shortino Nolan. Tom Birchall is our sound engineer. The editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Henry Trix, and in London, this is The Economist. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 